or follow along. We're just going to say together the parts in bold, which may be easier to see on your sheet than it is on the slides. I rejoiced in those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet were standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem built like a town that is joined fast together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of Yahweh. An ordinance it is for Israel to acclaim the name of the Lord. For there the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for Jerusalem's shalom. May your lovers rest tranquil. May there be well-being within your ramparts, tranquility in your palaces. For the sake of my siblings and my companions, let me speak, pray of your shalom. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, let me seek your good. Uh, we're reading Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. So you can follow along on your phone if you like, or on the screen. You have not come to be. Uh, you have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said. I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray together as we come to God's word tonight. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you long to be known and for us to know you. And so you tell us about who you are and how you relate to this world that you've made in the pages of the scriptures. Father, uh, we pray that as we uh, unpack uh, your word together tonight, that you would be, uh, by your spirit, using it to change us, to grow us, uh, to make us more and more your people. Uh, this is what we long for. This is what you promised to do in us. And so we ask in Jesus' name that you would do so. Amen. Uh, we framed this uh, series we're working through uh, using a book by the uh, American biblical scholar and pastor Eugene Peterson, uh, a book uh, called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, in this book, uh, he tells this story. As I entered a home to make a pastoral visit, the person I came to see was sitting at a window embroidering a piece of cloth on a hoop, uh, sorry, held taut on an oval hoop. She said, Pastor, while waiting for you, I've come to realise what's wrong with me. I don't have a frame. My feelings, my thoughts, my activities, everything is loose and sloppy. There's no border to my life. I never know where I am. I need a frame for my life like this one I have for my embroidery. I wonder if you resonate with that feeling, with that idea, that sense that this particular woman had. Do you have moments sometimes when you think, what am I even doing here? What's this actually all about? Does, does any of this actually make sense? Where am I headed? How do all the different 
bits and pieces that make up my life actually fit together as a coherent whole. Uh, we frame this series in the Psalms of Ascent uh, following Eugene Peterson as an exercise in discipleship. Uh, these Psalms are songs for the journey, a mixtape, a playlist of road trip songs uh, to help us as we walk the road between Jesus uh, calling us in the first place and his return at the end. Uh, these Psalms are resources for that journey for followers of Jesus, a journey that's long and often hard and sometimes really confusing. Here in Psalm 122, we're giving, given some, uh, something that can construct a frame for us. We're told how it is that the framework for our lives that God gives us is going to be built into our hearts and into our lives over and over again. Uh, we see that actually what it is that, that God gives us to, to have that kind of framework is the regular rhythm of worship designed to reshape us in our lives week by week as we gather together to give the Lord's name praise. Uh, this is a psalm really about what it is that we're doing together now, right here in this building and online as we gather together. What we're doing right here on Sundays as we do every week in church. Uh, we often refer to this as our corporate worship and in a sense this psalm is kind of just a little theology of what it is that we do when we do church together. And what it does is it tells us three things about this thing that we do together, this thing that gives a framework to our lives. Uh, firstly, it tells us that worship has power. Uh, secondly, it tells us about the people who worship. And thirdly, about the purpose of worship. And so we're going to unpack each of those three things in turn. The power of worship, the people who worship, and the purpose of worship. Uh, starting at point one. Now, the focus of Psalm 122 is pretty clear. It's the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Israel's political and spiritual capital is named in each of the three sections of this psalm and throughout the psalm, Jerusalem's physical features are described in some detail. But as we read the psalm, we notice that it isn't actually Jerusalem's design that most excites the psalmist. It's what happens in Jerusalem that causes him to rejoice. And what happens in Jerusalem is worship. Uh, you can hear that right at the very beginning. Verse 1, I rejoiced in those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He rejoiced because they said, let's go to church together. Let's go and join together in worship of our God. Uh, Eugene Peterson reckons that this translation is actually a little soft. Uh, his alternative translation says, my heart leaps for joy. Uh, and you know what? Uh, to be, tr to be um, fair and honest with you, I kind of feel like that a fair bit about church, actually. I love gathering for church together, and I know actually that, that most of you do as well. Uh, church isn't always as exciting as we might like it to be. We don't always feel like going to church, feel like doing it. And yet I think what uh, Eugene Peterson says is true. He goes on to say uh, that we're not listening here to the phony enthusiasm of a propagandist drumming up business for worship. We're witnessing what is typical of most Christians in most places at most times. This is not an exception to which we aspire. It's an instance of the average the psalmist is excited about going to church. And from my conversations with many of you, I know that you are too. Uh, I had a really interesting conversation uh, with uh, someone from church uh, way back at the beginning of our time doing church online early this year. Uh, this person was, was actually pretty angry that we couldn't meet face to face. And he kept saying, it's all just a bit stupid and can't we just get over it? And shouldn't we just be able to get on with the business of what we do? It's not that big a deal. Uh, and as we talked it through, uh, he realized that actually what was going on in his anger was that he had never really realised just how much being at church together had mattered to him. He hadn't realised actually just how important it was for his own spiritual walk, for his relationship and fellowship with his brothers and sisters. 
You see, church matters to us to the extent that if we can't have it, it actually makes us really grumpy. This is why we're all so annoyed about not being able to sing together at the moment. It's one of those things that we do when we gather and we can't do it. Church matters to us. Worship matters to us. And doing that together matters to us a great deal. Now, part of the reason for that, for this power that worship has, uh, is that it can shape and reshape us from week to week to rebuild the framework that makes sense of our lives. You see, this is what we're doing as we gather together. Uh, as Kat reminded us last week, uh, the Jewish pilgrims who sang these psalms on their way to worship in Jerusalem uh, weren't simple tourists. No, the Israelites travelled to Jerusalem to embed reality more deeply in their souls. Three times a year, according to the ordinance of God, Israel was to gather in Jerusalem for worship. Three journeys that formed this repeating pattern that would imprint on the mind and the soul of those who took these journeys. Of course, the Israelites worshipped at other times too, and of course we worship with our whole lives, don't we? Not only when we gather on Sundays. But those times were special formative occasions that provided a framework for everything else that happened for the Israelites across their year. Uh, and our regular weekly worship together on Sundays uh, serves a similar function. Uh, these are moments for us of building that framework that makes sense for us, of being reminded of the things that we know to be true about God, of having them deeply embedded in our hearts as we, uh, as we are sent back out again into God's world for the week. Uh, Psalm 122 draws our attention to three particular ways in which church does this for us. Uh, firstly, it shows us that uh, worship is all about giving thanks. Uh, verse 4, an ordinance it is for Israel to acclaim the name of the Lord. Uh, the ordinance, the command that God gives to his people about their worship is that they should acclaim his name. It's a word that means give thanks. They should give thanks to him. And that actually tells us something really deeply important. Uh, it tells us that thanksgiving is at the very heart of worship. Uh, thanksgiving is the shape that our worship takes from beginning to end, from top to bottom. Everything we do in worship has as its root, as its power, as the deepest reality of it, giving thanks to God. There are lots of other things, of course, that we do as we gather together in worship. We hear God's word in the Bible. We confess our sins. We ask God for what we and our world need. But the absolutely central thing that God calls his people to do in worship is to give thanks to his name, to acclaim him. Uh, and the reason for that actually is even deeper again. The fact that giving thanks is at the heart of worship is an expression of an even deeper reality about the fundamental nature and structure of the gospel itself. You see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the announcement that God has come to us, that he's done what we couldn't do for us, that he's reached out to us before we ever had any thought or even any reason to reach out to him. The gospel tells us that God has done what we needed to have done for us. He's done it absolutely and completely and sufficiently. There's nothing for us to contribute to it. He's won the victory over sin, evil and death, both out there in the world and in here in our own hearts as well. The good news is that God has done it for us. Not that God has, done, has something that he needs us to do for him. And so you see, fundamentally at the deepest level, we're actually all spectators to the gospel. We're watching from the sidelines as our great champion defeats the enemy on our behalf. And so our lives do what spectators do. We cheer him on. We celebrate his victory. We acclaim his name as the one who's done this great thing for us. We give thanks to him for everything that he's achieved. So the first way that our worship has the power to shape us and frame our lives is this way, is through giving thanks as our hearts are set on him and this one who's done what we needed to have done. The second way that, uh, that 
worship actually frames our hearts is related to that. It's uh, judgment. Uh, you see, why is it that the name of the Lord is acclaimed? Verse 5, for there the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Now, you see, what happens in Jerusalem, uh, what God does there and what God does from Jerusalem throughout Israel and through Israel into all the earth, is to establish judgment. And now in the, the late modern liberal West, we like to talk about how much we dislike judgment. Judgment's bad. Don't be judgmental. Now, we're right to loathe the sin of judgmentalism, but the fact is that in reality, we actually all love judgment, that we all long for judgment. Because what it is that judgment does, at least when it's in God's hands, what judgment does is to call evil out, to put it in its place and to establish where evil once was good and beauty and justice. Now, Eugene Peterson notes that the biblical word for judgment means the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. Thrones of judgment are the places that that word is announced. Judgment is not a word about things describing them. It's a word that does things, putting love in motion, applying mercy, nullifying wrong, ordering goodness. See, the reason that the heart of all worship is giving thanks is that the gospel is God putting everything back together again, making everything right, straightening out everything that sin and evil and death have made crooked. And not only that, of course, but the reason that this is the gospel is because that's who God is. He is just, he is righteous, he is good. And so we acclaim the name of the Lord, not only what he has done, but who he is as the one who would do this. Now, why is it that those things can, can reframe our hearts? Well, it's because if you really actually get that, then actually the third thing that we learn here about worship, worship can become for you a kind of refuge. Uh, let's pause just for a moment as we consider what this kind of heart of worship looks like uh, and just ask that question. Uh, how is your own thankfulness going at the moment? Uh, how deeply are your prayers soaked in thanks and praise? Uh, is it a simple reflex of your heart to give thanks to God for the good things that he gives you and especially for what he's done for you in Jesus? Is it your reflex to dwell on that and rest in it? Here's a question for you. Is your heart so soaked in thankfulness to God that you would give him literally anything he asks? No matter how much it put you, might put you out of joint with your peers or your career or your family? Are you so fixed on God's love and mercy and goodness that any obedience he calls for in your life, however painful or unexpected or confusing it might be, that you can trust that actually that that he's calling you to is for your good? You see, if you have that kind of thankfulness in your heart, then worship becomes for you a kind of refuge. Have a look in verse 3. This is what the psalmist is telling us. Jerusalem built like a town that is joined fast together. Now, that observation there that Jerusalem is joined fast together is a reference to its impenetrability. Jerusalem is solid. It's secure. There's no kind of secret passageways that people can worm into. No one can get in unless the gate is open for them. It goes together, actually, with the reference in verse 7 to ramparts, a kind of defensive wall built around a city or a fortress. What the psalmist is observing is that the place of worship is also a place of safety and security. You see, in those moments when you're doubting the framework, when life doesn't make sense, when you don't really know which way's up and which way's down, you're not sure you can actually keep walking on the road that Jesus has set you on, that can be quite overwhelming. That can even be quite frightening. 
To gather in worship is to come into a place of safety and security in the midst of all those fears and confusions that come upon us during our lives. And what we're doing here today and every Sunday is a refuge from all of those things that can so easily dominate the rest of our lives. Uh, theologian Stanley Harris describes it like this. Um, he's a, a Texan. He likes to say things nice and straight. I'm going to really, really try not to kind of go into a Texan accent as I say this. I'll do my best. Anyway, here's what Stanley Harris says about this. He says, I think worshipping God with other people is absolutely essential to learning to live as a Christian. This is not work that can be done by yourself. It can only be done in a community. It's like on Sunday, we need to rush to gather for protection. It's like we say, oh, I'm not crazy. Because we believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's craziness. It's going to make your life really weird. And so you just need to get together on Sunday to be pulled back into the reality of God's kingdom. Now, you see what he's saying? There's so much in the world that might cause us fear and confusion, so much that might take us away from the path that Jesus has put us on. We need people around us to do this together, to have our lives framed up again by what we do in worship together, week in, week out, so that we might actually go, you know what, I'm not crazy. This is true. This is the path I'm supposed to be walking on. What this psalm teaches us is that worship has the power to do that for us, to build and rebuild week to week a framework that makes sense of our lives. In worship, we give thanks to God for his gracious judgment, and we find refuge in that because we know that his judgment on us is that evil and sin will be done away with so that we can follow him faithfully. But we keep talking about this uh, idea of doing all this together, of this idea of corporate worship, of gathering together as God's people. What is it about doing these things together that's so important? Uh, and so point to uh, the people who worship. Uh, the psalmist is pretty clearly excited about going to church, but it's really important to actually see what it is that he's rejoicing in. Have a look with me again at verse 1. He says, I rejoiced in those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, but do you notice where the psalmist's joy is, where it's located? What it is that he rejoices in? It's not in going to the house of the Lord, first and foremost, though I'm sure he has plenty of joy in that. No, he rejoices in those who said to me, let's go to church together. His joy is in the fellowship that he shares with other pilgrims on the way. And so part of the power of worship is in the people who we worship with. Now, one of the hardest things about the journey that Jesus calls us on is often the ways in which we find ourselves uh, just kind of out of step with the world around us. Uh, as Stanley Harris says in that quote that we just read, it's going to make your life really weird to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, from, the perspective, from the perspective of the world around us, uh, our sexual ethics are weird. Our strange mix of political concerns is weird. Our determination, however sketchy, to put others before ourselves is weird. Our uh, unwillingness to speak harsh words about other people in our workplaces. Our ability to acknowledge our own failures. All of these things are just actually a little bit weird to people around us a lot of the time. Uh, in short, and let's just be honest about this, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we're a bit weird. That can be hard, of course. That can raise all kinds of fears and doubts and confusions and even conflicts as we walk through the world after Jesus. But the power of gathering in worship is to remind us that we're not alone on the road. There are other weirdo Jesus freaks just like me, who are just as out of step with the world, walking with us on the same pilgrimage. 
Uh, 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote uh, about this in his uh, classic book, Life Together. I'm about 98% sure that I've given you this quote in a sermon before. I'm 100% sure that I will give it to you again. So if you miss it now, don't worry. It'll come up again at some point in the next year or so, I'm sure. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about the importance of our gathering together. He says, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because living by their own resources, they can't help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in one's own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of another Christian. The heart in one's heart is uncertain, but the word is sure. You see what he's saying? So often, actually, our faith in various ways can be weak, can kind of be a little bit shriveled, can be hard to really actually believe in with our whole heart. But it's actually as we gather in worship together, as we share in fellowship together, that we bear witness to one another, that we say to one another as we gather in Jesus' name, no, this is true. You're not crazy. Jesus is Lord and he is alive and God loves you and he's near you and he's making everything right. We say to each other, keep close to us and together we'll stick close with him. It's worth pausing here again for a moment and just asking, uh, how are you going in your fellowship with one another in our church together, in our life together? Uh, Are you someone who's looking for opportunities to encourage one another, actually to speak God's word to them, to remind them of the truth of the Lord Jesus, to encourage them to keep steady on the path? Uh, Perhaps uh, even harder in some ways, how are you going at letting other people do that to you? How are you going at actually being open enough with your sisters and brothers about how your life is going that they can say to you, keep walking, keep obeying Jesus, keep sticking with him in this. You can do it. Because if they don't know what's going on for you, they're not going to be able to speak to you in that way. How are you going, actually, at letting others bear witness to you? How are you going at bearing witness to one another? See, the power of worship through the people who worship is able to build and rebuild this framework for our lives, a framework of thankful hearts fixed on the God who's determined to straighten everything out, to bring the judgment that puts everything right. Uh, But, of course, our worship doesn't end at 7.15pm or earlier, depending on who's preaching, or or later, depending on who's preaching. Our worship doesn't end at 7.15pm on a Sunday, does it? Our worship has a life and a purpose beyond our gatherings together on Sundays. And so, point three, we want to ask, what is the purpose of worship? Uh, In the first five verses of this psalm, uh, the psalmist just kind of goes nuts over how great Jerusalem is, how wonderful it is to worship there in the house of the Lord, how wonderful it is to do that together with his fellow pilgrims. Uh, But then in verse six, in the last stanza of the psalm, he kind of shifts focus a little bit. Let me read it for you again. He says, pray for Jerusalem's shalom. May your lovers rest tranquil. May there be well-being within your ramparts, tranquility in your palaces. For the sake of my siblings and my companions, let me speak, pray of your shalom. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, let me seek your good. The worship the psalmist is so excited about here leads him uh, beyond his immediate moment of worship into prayer for, as he puts it, Jerusalem's shalom. Uh, Shalom is that beautiful Hebrew word uh, that basically means peace. Uh, You'll know it probably mostly from uh, TV shows and movies where uh, Jews use it as a greeting to one another. Peace, peace be upon you. That's what shalom means. 
Uh, but the word actually is deep and rich in meaning and connected to so much of the story of what God is doing uh, throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of his creation. Now, here's what Eugene Peterson has to say about this word. Uh, he says, The word shalom gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It's the word of God that, when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with, with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, there we have a demonstration of shalom. Uh, but what's so interesting about the psalmist's prayer here is that it isn't just a prayer that the city of Jerusalem will be at peace. You see, the pilgrims who sang this song as they walked to Jerusalem, what did they do after they'd worshipped in the temple? They went home again. And the songs that they sang on the way to and from Jerusalem and the worship that they experienced and the fellowship they enjoyed in Jerusalem provided for them a framework for everything that happened in between those pilgrimages. When the psalmist here prays for Jerusalem's shalom, he's praying that the peace, the refuge, the justice in that place of worship would follow him on his way home and be with him every step of the way and come to characterise not only Jerusalem but the whole of Israel and beyond Israel even to the ends of the earth. For the sake of my siblings, he says, and my companions, let me speak, pray of your shalom. Wherever I find myself, he says, let me have this peace on my lips. May this thing that's true that I find in the refuge of worship be true of the whole of my life in all the earth. What this psalm is telling us is that the framework that's given to our lives in worship will shape us to live in love and service to the world around us, wherever we, where, <coughs> wherever we find ourselves. To have hearts soaked in thankfulness through worship will mean that our worship flows out beyond the special formative moments when we gather together to be the rhythm and the song of our whole lives. The purpose of worship is to acclaim the name of the Lord, not only in Jerusalem, not only in church, but in everything that we do, everywhere and anywhere that we find ourselves. Uh, our worship, and we all know this to be true, doesn't end with our Sunday gathering. And that means that the more our hearts are shaped and framed in worship, uh, the more we'll seek Jerusalem's shalom in every city, the more we'll seek the good of the cities and the communities in which we find ourselves. The more we have that heart of thankfulness that we see God's judgment for us and for our good, the more we'll be the kinds of people who care about the kind of wholeness brought about by those judgments of God. Like Jesus, we'll be people who heal, people who forgive, people who seek to call others into the kingdom. We people who are passionate about straightening out what sin and evil and death have made crooked, people of justice and mercy and grace. That's the power that worship has. Worship has this power to give us a framework to get our hearts set back on God again in fellowship together so that as we go out into his world throughout the week and throughout our lives, we can be on for what he's on for. But of course, the way is hard. We frequently stumble and slip along the way. Our lives often don't make all that much sense. And even our fellow pilgrims let us down from time to time. So what is it that's going to keep this framework strong? What is it about this framework that's given to us in worship shaped by the gospel? What is it about this that can actually keep us walking with Jesus on the road together? Uh, the psalmist, as we've seen, says, An ordinance it is for Israel to acclaim the name of the Lord. This is his command. Give thanks to the name of the Lord. And in the gospel, we learn that actually the Lord is not only the one whose name we acclaim, but the one who's walked the journey before us. Uh, and of course, not only before us, our Lord Jesus is the one who's walked the journey for us. 
Uh, Jesus, of course, made his own pilgrimage to Jerusalem. As a faithful Israelite, he made frequent journeys as set out in the commands of God. But it was his final pilgrimage that set him apart from his fellow Jews. And it's that pilgrimage that makes our own pilgrimage possible. Jesus went to Jerusalem seeking shalom, seeking the judgment of God, seeking the good of that place, seeking the good of God's people. But when he arrived at that city, uh, as recorded for us in Luke's gospel, he didn't rejoice like the psalmist does. Instead, Jesus wept. He said these words, If you, Jerusalem, had only recognised on this day the things that made for peace, indeed the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you, they will crush you into the ground, because you didn't recognise the time of your visitation from God. Jesus made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to seek the judgment of God, but he found no peace in that city. Instead, he was crushed into the ground as he found the judgment of God being poured out on himself. Uh, His ultimate act of worship, his giving of himself from a full heart of thanks to God, even unto death, his ultimate act of worship left him no refuge and he made his pilgrimage utterly alone with even those fellow pilgrims who'd gone with him to Jerusalem, leaving him on the side of the road. He sought peace and instead found death. But in his death, he turned God's judgment around so that we can find a refuge of peace where for us there should only ever have been death. You see, the cross has become for Jesus the throne of judgment on which he's enthroned as the king over creation. And from that throne of judgment, he's spoken the final word of condemnation on sin, on evil and on death and has ordained, commanded that peace and refuge and joy be forevermore what is in store for those who follow after him. And from him, through us, as together we walk after him, the peace that he won in Jerusalem flows out into the world. An ordinance it is for Israel, the psalmist writes, to acclaim the name of the Lord. Uh, Transposed, if you like, into the key of the gospel, what we hear God saying to us here is, an ordinance it is for the church to acclaim the name of Jesus. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what our worship makes possible. This is what we're doing as we gather together on Sunday nights together. We're being reframed, having our hearts reshaped in thankfulness to the God whose judgment has brought good for us so that we might walk after him in ways of peace and righteousness and justice. We're going to stand and sing and do this, actually, and give our praise to our Father.